0: Good morning and welcome to the Weekend Debrief. I'm Josh Derso, joined in studio by Ted Baker. He's the host of Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. That's WGBA and WAUB. And it has been a rough and busy couple weeks for anybody in the news and, frankly, everyone else, too. Uh, Ted, welcome. we got a lot Great to talk about. Great to be about.
1: back. Uh, I love the tables you've put outside the studio for dining purposes. That's a nice touch.
0: <laughs> it is... Uh, you know this, and that's the thing that we have been constantly coming back to on this program, and pretty much everyone in New York State in the news business has been really um, up until maybe like the last week and a half when the George Floyd killing and the the, the uh, unrest on that side started to really percolate and and stay at the surface level. All it's been is how are we going to get there? How are we going to open things? How are we going to get back to business? And the jobs report that came out this morning just blew everybody. Uh, Basically, out of the water, uh, over two million jobs added in may uh, completely unexpected uh, they're saying that it moved the needle on uh on unemployment figures by probably about a percentage and a half or two percent percentage points uh overall. interesting stuff um, mainly because of this uh, and, and this is where I want to start that the dichotomy between these two gigantic stories that were were focused on that we've got this attention on. You've got this quote-unquote economic recovery, if you want to call it that, that's starting to take shape now, with the backdrop being, uh, you know, most cities and most communities uh, in a very uh, difficult spot right now as it tries to navigate, uh, you know, decades and decades and decades of injustice. So Someone
1: made the point uh, earlier this week that we have essentially the 1918 flu pandemic, the 1930s Great Depression, and the 1968 race riots all happening in one year.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that's 2020 at this point, right? Um, So a couple announcements quickly before we uh, get rolling here. Uh, The Daily Debrief is coming back on Monday. Uh, The Weekend Debrief, we're back to being weekly, 9.45 each Friday, uh, beginning next week. We're also going to be getting more people involved. You're probably going to see Jackie back. You're probably going to see some other folks back in the coming weeks. So, uh, And hopefully we'll be doing as much of it as we can in the studio. We'll still be doing some remote stuff, but um, as business opens up, we too shall open up and it won't just be for to-go orders. Um, so first things first, uh, Ted, your thoughts on what the last week and a half uh, has has been like from someone in the news business, someone who's covering uh, the protests, the rallies. Obviously, the, the the brutal killing that wound up being the centerpiece for this this broader uh, movement that we're seeing now. Um, obviously, Thursday we saw additional charges, upgraded charges for the officers involved in his death. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of the perspective of being a news person covering this? As compared to some of the other, um, some of the other instances of police brutality that uh, we have covered, you know, just over the last decade.
1: Well, it's interesting. In one sense, being in the media, it's almost it makes everything easy. We, there, I mean, there's there's no lack of stories. There's a million different angles on a million different stories every day. But whether you're in the media or just a, a regular citizen on the street. There's just a sense of overwhelm it's It's like sensory overload just I mean the covid story was enough, and now we have the return of the racial issue uh there's there seems to be a certain sense i, I heard someone use the quote this morning that that this is the one that will do it that that this time we aren't going to just talk about this for a few days and then let it go that some change might be affected i don't know if I quite am ready to believe that, but at least there's that sense
0: It's interesting you say that because i've that has kind of been the debate that I have been having with with people close to me over the last basically week to week and a half it It seems to me that we are at this tipping point, but there is still a ton of skepticism, and rightfully so, given you know the last you know seventy eighty years of history that that's you know that we have readily available. Um, my my thought, though, is, is that it's almost as if this story, no matter how badly some people want to insert politics into it, and there are people who have been trying to insert politics into this, and I get that, um, but as badly as one may try, it's not political. This isn't a matter of you aren't defending cops enough. You aren't defending this group enough. You aren't doing this or doing that. What happened to him and what has been happening for decades now is wrong, and it needs to change. Now, from the the newsman's standpoint in me, I, I can't help but be a little bit frustrated at what we've been hearing from elected leaders, even those on the quote-unquote progressive side of this issue. Um, they talk about these things, and I'll use Governor Cuomo as an example. He He outlined effectively what sounded— earlier this week, like a a federal presidential platform on how to end uh, systemic racism, particularly with the, the, the slant of starting at criminal justice and reform and bubbling out from there. Why is he talking about, and he always talks about how New York state leads, New York state leads, one of the most progressive states in the union. Okay. So why not lead? And do something at the state level that can actually affect change. Don't talk about federal policies. You've, you've seen how, Cuomo, you've seen how that has gone for you as you have waited for money, uh, a bailout, effectively, over the coronavirus pandemic. You're not going to affect change by pointing out all of these federal policies that will make the biggest difference in the world. Start where you can affect change. He's signed how many executive orders? Start signing some executive orders to change change the wave here
1: well that's uh I've made that point on our morning show a number of times is, is that instead of criticizing what the federal government's doing, do what you can do at the state level. What really bothers me whenever we get this issue of race front and center is that most of the media coverage and most of the discussion forgets the main point that you just made. It's about the protests and their motivation and their political affiliation and who's behind them and should they be allowed to do it and should it be violent. The issue is what you just said. Black people don't have equal rights in America. They haven't for a long time. It may have gotten better, but it isn't getting better enough or fast enough and they want to change. So in all of this coverage I've seen, for all these days, where are the elected officials putting together commissions and starting discussions and figuring out how to change the problem? I There was one, we brought it up this morning, Lincoln, Nebraska. Apparently they got together and there was a community panel of citizens and police and they reached an agreement on some changes to the way police will operate in Lincoln. And will that hold? I don't know. But that's what we need and that's what I'm not seeing. I'm seeing too much about George Soros is buying piles of bricks and stashing them in cities and it's Antifa and you don't like the flag and it's just, the issue is simple. Black people still don't have the rights their constitution guarantees them, and they're sick of it, and they want it to change, and we should all want it to change.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, in you know, the way the news media works right now or the way the system works, if you're listening or you're watching sort of the the national cable networks, places like that, you're going to see the flashpoints. You're going to see the, the parts of this that are, are more graphic than a vast majority of them actually are. And, and a good reflection of that is, you know, throughout the last week and a half, we've covered the various protests that have taken place in the region. Um, there, were, there have been at least two that I'm aware of, two, maybe three in Geneva. Uh, Canandaigua had one a couple days ago. Auburn had, a, had one last week. Very peaceful, huge turnout the right thing, like the thing that we want to see, the thing that will ultimately, I think, if there's going to be political change, cause the political change, because numbers makes a difference.
1: And the leaders said all the right things. The political leaders, the police in those areas are all saying the right things. So if they'll follow up and do those things, then we've got some progress. I think if you watch CNN or ABC or NBC or whoever you would get the impression that the majority of protest across the country has been violent i don't think that's been the case i think the vast majority of it has not been violent and and that's the other problem that we have to overcome is the sensationalist instinct of the media there are people who argue that there's a left bias or a right bias the bias is toward conflict and sensationalism
0: yeah and and my point still is just that you know if you look at The local coverage of it, whether you're reading The Citizen, whether you're reading Finger Lakes One, whether you're reading the Finger Lakes Times, whether you're reading a a community blog or whatever the case may be, it's been that these events have been good for the movement. And there hasn't been this overwhelming risk of loss of life or property or anything like that. It's just been people turning out for a cause that, frankly, makes complete logical sense. We need to change. And also,
1: period. I think we can all agree that looting is not protest. Looting is just crime. Right. Going into a store and smashing the window and taking stuff out has no place in any kind of protest movement. And, and I don't think it's indicative of the movement at all.
0: I'm curious, so I've seen this this question that I'm about to throw out framed a couple different ways or answered a couple different ways um, we've seen officials in different cities where things have gotten uh, uglier uh blame outside agitators how does that How does that hit you because when I hear it, I can't help but think to myself, this is it's not about the looting. It's not about the protesting. Like, this, everything that's happening right now, whether it's good or bad, is a direct result of systemic racism, period. Like, it doesn't go any further than that. So, it, is that part of it, the, the part where we see officials come out and say, well, it's outside agitators who are causing this, causing that, causing the other, is that problematic too? from a perspective of being able to cover this thing as news media in an objective way.
1: I think what it is is an attempt by people who favor the status quo to keep it that way by minimizing the real grievances. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you show pictures of looters and say, see, they're not really protesting racial injustice, they just want free TVs. I think it's a way to, again, take our eye off the ball and bring it to all these side issues. I I just, I mean, some of it's just insane. I mean, the idea that billionaire financier George Soros wakes up in the morning and plans how to get pallets of bricks to downtown areas in the United States so Antifa can use them to throw them at cops. I mean, really, that's what you're going with?
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to me because I I wanna say this. I was a little bit critical earlier about what Governor Cuomo outlined for a federal, you know, lineup of policies that could potentially be good, uh, to change some of the things that we've seen. Um, but the truth is that his outline of points were spot on in terms of what will need to happen because they addressed all of the other, uh, systemic issues that have created the, the problems that we're seeing now, you know, they're, They're economic, they're socioeconomic, they're they're educational, they're all of these things beyond just the the basic constructs of of racism in terms of police-community relationship. And my other issue here is, as we cover this, my concern continues to be that in smaller, more rural communities, we're going to see a slower move toward adopting what becomes the new normal, and I think— that's going to be problematic for a couple different reasons, but mainly that it could create a scenario where some of those communities become, I don't want to say havens for, you know, ideology that, that isn't right or isn't just, um, but there could be, you know, as we move forward as a as a country, I think... Every single community, you know, we, I'll compare it to the, the sort of technology lag that exists in rural parts of the Finger Lakes. Okay, so we can't afford to have that kind of lag when we start to make systemic changes in the way the communities throughout the state or throughout the country are policed. We just can't because you can't have two different, you can't have multiple ways of doing it. Like It needs to be done one way and it needs to be done fairly across the board.
1: Well, I understand what you're saying, and I, I think it's always been kind of the way things are in our country, is that progressive ideas begin in the bigger cities, and whether it's fashion or art or anything, um, LGBTQ issues, they they tend to start in the highly populated areas and, and spread out. The, one point I want to make before we get off of the, the racial situation in policing is one of the real hopes I have for optimism is we're seeing a lot of things out of police right now that we've never seen before that I remember kneeling with protesters and and really, I think, acknowledging maybe for the first time that there are bad apples within the system. And I think we're finally able to have the conversation that there are bad apples within the system, but that we're not painting all of them with a bad brush it's for years the argument has been if you criticize any cop you're criticizing them all I think now we're reaching a point where we can criticize the bad ones and still honor the good ones for the difficult job that they have to do and and we need to make that distinction there are we saw it again in Buffalo yesterday where they shove a guy down and and you know, the the cop that did it's ready to hit him again. He's been suspended. I mean, even in Minneapolis, the, the everyone's we want justice. It looks like we're going to get justice. The cop that did it is on very serious charges. The three that didn't do anything about it have been charged. That's why there's... You never know, because we have a short memory, and there's always another issue that we jump onto. You know, all we need is another little COVID outbreak, and this will be out of the news again. But... There's reason to believe, like that person said, that this case might be the one that affects some real change.
0: It feels like the moment's too large. Like, I'm not sure in in my 30 years of life that I, I can recall a moment where the moment felt as large as this one clearly is. And I just can't imagine a scenario where the the system that exists, that, that we govern our entire lives by... Um, It doesn't adapt, doesn't change. And if it doesn't, I I mean, I just can't even imagine what that world looks like moving forward, frankly. Well,
1: and here's one of the other agents of change. I mean, I'm barely old enough to remember the racial unrest of the late 60s. I was late elementary school in those days. What we have now that we didn't have then is pervasive video. Yeah. Now we see it. Now the cop behaves badly in Buffalo and the whole world gets to see it. I think that's going to help along the change because you can no longer argue that it didn't really happen. It didn't happen the way you said it did. We can see how it happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Disciplinary files. This was something that, that we had talked a little bit about before we came on. Um, there's some movement at the state level to see the the protections that have historically existed uh, for those in different police agencies, from having their their disciplinary files effectively shared with the media, with the public, et cetera, et cetera, that getting repealed or pushed back seems like it would be a step one. Um, but it's interesting to me. I can't help but read this story and think to myself, "Well, geez, there's a, you know, basically everyone who works on the taxpayer dime should, should have an open personnel file." You know, it's one of those things. You know, covering. Various boards and, and governing bodies, you know, the number one reason why, people, why these boards and entities go into executive session is to discuss the, the whatever under that falls under personnel or whatever they decide falls under personnel in that moment. In my mind, this is a great opportunity to open things up and really create some transparency across the board. No more, no more shielding personnel matters behind closed doors in these govern in these governing areas. Why? Simply put, they're funded by the taxpayer. Period. Like if you go to work for a county or you go to work for a town or a city or a village or whatever the case may be, you're going to work for a public entity. You realize that. You know that. It's a municipality. Don't expect to have your actions while they're good, bad or indifferent, protected just because it's a job. It doesn't... So, in my mind, I would love at this point to see the whole... A real focused effort to eliminate that shield that exists right now.
1: I think I have maybe a minority viewpoint on this. It concerns me. I understand the point. What concerns me is that accusation... Let's talk about specifically the case of police accusation does not equal guilt. If you're working at an inner-city police department for 20 years, there are going to be complaints filed against you. So I guess I would want to make sure that there was a way to differentiate between those that were unfounded and, and those that had some basis in fact. I, I I hesitate a little bit at the idea that any accusation... Because what ends up happening is... The accusation creates a certain weight, so there's a belief that this guy's been accused of behavior five times, therefore he must be guilty, even if he was never found guilty any of the five times.
0: But I think that goes back to the point that we need a better system in place so that there is confidence in those the results of those right. investigations. If, if we
1: can have that confidence
0: that is, or, and I or mean, maybe
1: expunge from the record unfounded complaints... Then I'm okay with it, and and in general, the idea of more openness, yeah, I, I think that probably would not be a bad idea at all.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting to me because I think it's that it's it's a strange it's a it's a strange line because it it just makes me think. Well, if you're going to if this is going to be something that you're going to push for in the law enforcement community. Why on earth wouldn't you wouldn't you apply it to virtually every other publicly held position?
1: It does seem odd that there are certain you know public officials we, we know exactly to the dollar what they make in salary, and yet other information we can 't get at all
0: yeah. uh, Congressional lawmakers are considering a ban on chokeholds and anything else that restricts blood flow. Uh, others are calling for uh, abolition of law enforcement in general, which is a really unique um, you want to talk about criminal justice reform. That's a straight-up overhaul. Um, not saying that it isn't possible. I've heard some interesting uh, long-form stuff. I've been listening to some interesting long-form stuff over the last week, week and a half, that you know there are other systems that could work other than the, the traditional criminal justice system that we use right now. It's just a matter of buying into it and actually implementing it, implementing real change. Um, do you think say we just get the very basic here, a ban on chokeholds or anything else that restricts blood flow. Say we get that, that, that passes at the federal level. Do you think that actually creates any legitimate change? I feel like that is the least that we could possibly do in a system that is literally just chucked full with systemic issues. Like the whole thing is broken. And It's almost as if we're going to say the one action that ended the life of one person in one set of circumstances is going to be the thing that will convert into law.
1: I think the chokehold issue is, is symbolism. I talk a lot about politicians wanting to be seen as doing something. That's what this is, and frankly, I'm against it because I think it's a legitimate law enforcement tool. It can be abused like any tool. I don't think we should ban steak knives because they can be used to stab somebody. I think the more important issue is better screening of people who are allowed to become police. I think one of the big problems with policing in our country is I think a lot of the people who get into it get into it for the wrong reasons. They get into it because I get to carry a badge and tell you what to do. We, we see these videos... Again, some of these protests. It's been ironic that some of the protest videos this week have shown us some of the worst in police behavior. Last night in Buffalo, 75-year-old guy walks up to a group of cops. There's about 20 of them there. He clearly doesn't present any threat to anybody. He's not armed. He walks up, I don't know what he's saying, and one of them shoves him down, he stumbles backwards, hits his head on the concrete, and he's bleeding from the back of his head. The officer who shoved him, you can see in the video, briefly leans over him and gets ready to give him some more and then realizes differently, we've seen cases of journalists. Uh, it was, it might have been Washington. Uh, a cop tells the journalist, it's after curfew. Get out of here. You can't be here. Journalist says, I'm a journalist. I'm not subject to your curfew. And the cop starts wailing on the guy there are too many police who think that they are the law and that if I ask you to move and you don't move, that gives me the right to start hammering on you with a wooden stick. we got to get those cops out. And I made the point, one of my colleagues on my morning show is a former police officer, and I said, I'd like to see more condemnation on the part of good cops for that bad cop behavior. There's still that tendency to stick together the thin blue line and all that kind of stuff. We're seeing some of it change, but that's the real change that we need. Is we need the good cops to call out those bad ones. We needed the three guys standing around you know while the other cops got his knee on the guy's neck and say no, you can't do that.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting and I think it goes it, again, it goes back to the point. We're seeing some Symbolic moves from law enforcement, but law enforcement will really need to be part of part of the discussion and part of the solution. Moving and beyond
1: forward. just you know the next week, that's great that you're taking a knee with people. That's great that you're issuing statements of support. Now show us, now do it. Get those bad apples out, get them out quickly, and get them up on charges. It just there's no excuse for a police officer to start beating the hell out of somebody because he didn't listen to your order.
0: Yeah. And, you know, also reimagine, you know, reinvent the way police officers are being trained. Clearly there's a, there is a, you know, if you look at the way law enforcement has had to react to uh, the, the protests and the rallies when they feel they have gotten out of control or when they're trying to enforce a curfew, there's clearly a gap in what law enforcement is capable of being able to deal with in terms of, you know, crowd control and things like that. Um, But in terms of day-to-day policing, like it, it becomes a training issue. It becomes a redesign issue. It becomes a a interface issue. Like you, you have to go back to the drawing board and overhaul this thing from the start, from the moment a, a uh, prospective law enforcement officer is going through academy or even thinking about it while they're in college um, you know, that is, it just, ha- it has to happen, period. Well,
1: I, I think, first off, and I, because any time, like I say, you start criticizing police and you get tagged that you hate police. I don't hate police. My father was one. I think good police are fine, and we have lots of them, and they should be applauded. It's a difficult job. It's very difficult for those of us who haven't done it to understand making a decision in a a split second where you think the guy has a gun and you shoot, and it turns out he doesn't. But, now, I mean, this Minneapolis case was just egregious. I I don't know what was going through that officer's mind. But what we've seen in a lot of the previous cases are relatively routine situations that escalate. And you see the cop get emotional. He starts yelling and screaming and often contradictory orders. And the guy in the car is trying to, uh, he wants me in, he wants me out. What does he want me to do? And then the next thing you know, they're dragging somebody out and they're shooting him. So I, I think, yeah, I think there has to be a, a lot more effort given to de-escalation. And I think another thing, and, and a lot of police might disagree with this, there's that attitude among police that that your number one the, the saying is that your number one job is to make it home safely at night. And I think that's often used for justifying bad behavior. Uh, I thought my life was in danger, so I shot the guy. Well, maybe you should wait another second or two and make sure that that object in his hand is a gun or isn't a gun before you shoot.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the stories that cropped up locally uh, after all of this had been sort of playing out in communities around the U.S. Uh, a couple local radio hosts were fired from their positions because of some uh, ignorant racist things that were said on air. Um, the Kimberly and Beck show, a lot of people listened to it, Radio 95. one, yada, 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 owned by iHeartRadio. Um, they had already been canned from a previous station five, six years ago. Uh, and then this happened, and this was the this was the one, and I think because of the things that had uh, been happening over the last week, week and a half, this was the one that sort of uh, tipped. There was this was the tipping point. Um, I will say this though, like as someone who who I have an hour commute one way and an hour commute another way, and I listen to a lot of different things in the morning, and I listen to a lot of different things in the afternoon. And anybody who thinks that this was sort of an outlier or an unusual set of circumstances or something to that effect because i've seen that on Facebook uh, with these two individuals it this clearly not the case this is that was their brand that was their m o and uh, I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but frankly, uh, judging from the feedback that they get or they had received uh consistently on their programming was it that that's that's the that was their audience and what does it say about you know us as a as a society well man it says we need we have a lot of work to do we have to really work hard but i'm curious from your perspective in that industry um what is the where do you come down on that in terms of you know being better i guess about being able to identify those All the time. Not just when it's getting a lot of attention or an issue is getting a lot of attention.
1: I've been a broadcaster for 42 years. I do a news talk show every morning. There's no script. Um, I've put my foot in it from time to time, as anybody will, working without a script. And I'm not a big fan of seeing broadcasters lose their jobs over things they say. Having said that, you got to have a brain. And it was just stupid. The comment that she made, she said for those who don't know, they were referring to some protests in Rochester, and she said, I believe it was don't they or doesn't he look n-wordly? And that's how she said it. She didn't use the word. But you can't go there. That's that's just it's off limits. There are certain things anybody ought to know that are off limits. That was just dumb and and if there's a case where a firing is deserved for something like that i i think this is clearly it it was just a dumb thing to say it wasn't a slip of the tongue it wasn't an opinion in the heat of a discussion it was just dumb
0: yeah and you know it's clearly racist like there is no there is no in between on this you you look at the brand the brand of the show and you look at the audience that they're trying to hit and you, you take what she says, and whether you want to argue or whether someone wants to argue that it was a slip of tongue, as I've seen pop up a few times on social media, um, or not, it doesn't change the fact that it, it's, it's racist. You, you it was deliberate. Yeah. Like there, it wasn't as opposed accidental. to,
1: you know, the other case is if you remember uh, Jeremy, I think it's Capel is how you say his last name, the meteorologist, his case was a slip of the tongue. There was no reason to think he had any intent. There was nothing in his past to indicate that he was racist. That was a bad case of a firing. This one was justified, and they'll wind up doing their shtick for somebody else a month or two
0: down the road. I don't—and that's where I think—because I've seen that a lot, especially in in Rochester Twitter. Um, I've seen that a lot, where there's this assumption that they're going to wind up somewhere else. But I just—I'm very— I don't know because of the, the They direction. make money for
1: their employers. They'll wind up somewhere else.
0: It, it's, yeah, well, I guess that, Follow that's- Follow the money. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about reopening. Uh, businesses starting to reopen here in the Finger Lakes, Central New York, Southern Tier, a few other regions. Uh, we are barreling towards phase three. We're in phase two. Um, it's interesting because it seems from my perspective that by the end of this month- i think we're in phase four honestly i think we are moving so fast at this point that no matter what the data says and the statewide data is good so i think we're going in the right direction in that in that regard we're not going to see the governor pump the brakes on reopening at any point we're just basically clearing these checkpoints and not much thought really is going into it beyond that um it's also becoming pretty clear at this point that if we are going to see another spike, it probably isn't going to happen until the fall. Uh, just because of how, how many, or I should say the way that the statewide numbers are trending, uh, along with coupled with the one, the reopening and two, the blatant disregard for the benchmarks in certain areas. And when I say certain areas, I mean a vast majority of them. Um, People are getting together with their friends. They're not adhering to ten-person limits on anything. Uh, you have portions of the population who think everyone is, who think everyone is, uh, or a vast majority of people are following these the CDC recommendations and everything like that. Um, but I hate to be the bearer of bad news here and say that you know it just isn't being it isn't being adhered to and it is isn't being enforced. There's no enforcement happening here. So all that being said. Where do you sort of grade where we are now versus where you think we're going to be in, say, a week and a half, two weeks?
1: Well, when you look at the numbers, and and first off, we have to keep in mind when we look at the numbers that the amount of testing has gone up tremendously since even a month or so ago. The numbers in a state of 19.5 million people When 50 of something happened yesterday, in this case, COVID deaths, I mean, that's essentially zero. I don't minimize anybody's death, but, I I mean, so 50 people died of COVID. Probably 50 people died in car crashes in New York yesterday. New York City, the epicenter, had zero deaths for the first time. For all intents and purposes, this outbreak is over in New York State, and particularly so here in the Finger Lakes. And when I say Finger Lakes, I don't use the state's definition of including Monroe County. When I talk about the five stations that our morning show, the five counties our morning show covers, Wayne, Ontario, Yates, Seneca, Cayuga, there were almost no cases outside of nursing homes in any of those counties. So we flattened the curve. And the other thing is to keep in mind, A lot of predictions were that when we began any sort of reopening, numbers would spike back up. It hasn't been the case. So it seems to me logic dictates at a certain point we understand that this thing is mostly over. And, you know, we keep talking about a second wave, but isn't that just what we call flu season again? I mean, it's this virus like most viruses of its type begins in the fall peaks in the winter and goes away in the spring. I think when historians study this, they're going to find that the high death toll has been as much because of the way we reacted. than in spite of it, I really think we've made a lot of wrong decisions with this that led to that toll going up.
0: Yeah. it's, (coughs) It's interesting. So, uh, when we look toward the fall, Hobart and William Smith colleges say they're reopening. They're going to have a quote-unquote normal semester. Um, school budget votes are coming up here within basically like a week or so. Um, they're, these budget votes are based on imaginary numbers. Four days. Yeah, imaginary. Yeah, right. Um, imaginary numbers that were given out in early April based on, you know, March projections and... Uh, it's interesting because we talked about it on your show this morning. I'm a little bit flabbergasted at the, the, the short-sightedness of, of pretty much everything in this, in this area, right? Like school administrators seem to be cognizant of the fact that they know there's going to be a budget shortfall, but they aren't at all forecasting for anything less than what they had been uh, promised pre-COVID. And all of the evidence suggests that there is going to be a significant shortfall, not a shortfall, a significant shortfall. So is that just going to nullify these budgets that when, come July, when we realize that, you know, the federal government isn't going to give New York state and other states who are facing a deficit, the billions of dollars that they need to equalize things. Are we going to realize that the budget everybody voted on at that point was a complete sham and and totally pointless? Like, is that going to be the moment?
1: I, I hope we don't have to wait that long to recognize it. I recognize it now. I mean,
0: it's... It, we, so what it, does that mean? Like, does that mean we, that everyone means, should vote no on their school I don't, budget? Well,
1: and see, here's the problem. We always talk about how this whole COVID outbreak has laid bare all these problems with society and, and or questions. And one is education. And the way our school budget process is set up and by design, is that if you vote down a budget, you're left with a contingency budget that is so bad for education and so bare bones that no one dares vote down school budgets. That's why school budgets pass at a a 98 or 99% rate because the alternative is so bad, the entire system is biased in favor of voting yes. I would have loved to have seen... One school board somewhere, as a protest, refused to do a budget and say, we can't do a budget. A budget's a spending plan. How do I make a spending plan when I don't know and you don't know and nobody knows, never mind what revenues are coming in, we don't know what school will be in the first week of September in New York. Will it be in person as always? It doesn't look like it. Will it be split shifts with half a classroom in the morning and another half a classroom in the afternoon? Will it be some sort of hybrid of in-person and distance online learning? We don't even know that. So it's it, it's a completely sham process, and we're all supposed to nod our heads and pretend that it's normal. And no, it isn't.
0: Yeah, that part to me is the most interesting because there is this... Um, I, I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that there's this overwhelming acceptance that the money isn't there, that we don't know what the fall is going to look like. But we see administrators and school boards and people in the education field just bludgeoning forward as if nothing is is happening, and it makes absolutely no sense to me. It makes no sense. I I, I understand think... the protest point that you're making. And maybe that would have been nice, but objectively, you don't need to protest. You legitimately just can't create a budget when you don't know what you have or what is going to be, period. I think
1: part of it may be, I think there's a fear that if you don't come up with a normal-looking budget, that you'll somehow be locked into that. And if I do come up with a normal-looking budget, then maybe things will get better and we'll be all right. In other words, nobody... No one wants to be the school board that says, okay, we have to cut math, science, and history this year. I mean, nobody's going to do that. So with, with the constraints and the system they're presented with, I think they all mostly said, okay, look, let's just make a budget that looks kind of like what we've had in the past.
0: So what we're probably going to end up with is uh, school budgets that look a lot like the New York State budget, where... You have a plan to spend X, and every at every benchmark, because there are those dates throughout the calendar year when schools right. learn how much aid they're going to be getting, um, or when aid payments are delayed. You're going to have this scenario where we could see cuts in August, September, December, next March. Is is that the school year you want to give students?
1: Well, and as taxpayers, are we going to be willing to pay taxes for online learning, which we know, with all due respect to teachers who've tried to do the best they can, has been mostly a joke because they got no warning. They were told one day in March that, you know, on a Thursday, that starting Monday you have to do online learning. So the teachers have no framework to put this together. In many cases, students are home alone, and there's no one making them do these things. It's, it's another one of those questions. We need a governor who spends less time on television and more time with experts coming up with answers to these questions. What is education going to look like going forward? What's our economy and the workforce going to look like going forward? What is government going to look like? going forward. Instead, we get the governor telling everybody who went to a protest that they need to go get a swab up their
0: nose. Yeah. I, here's my thing. I, I understand that teachers, that school administrators, that school boards are in an incredibly difficult spot right here. And it would be very hard to say, well, unfortunately, we're going to have to need to cut 40% of our staff. But I would much rather do that tomorrow than cut 15% in September, another 20% in December, and then another 30% in March of next year to get to that number. Because the effect that that's going to have while we are, by the way, navigating a school year that looks unlike anything we've ever seen before. Where we are going to clearly, we're going to have shifts of students coming and going because these districts do not have the physical space to keep students distanced. The way and the that's CDC at best the, right.
1: the the multi-shift idea is the right. best case scenario. So,
0: why not make the hard decisions now? And perhaps, if you know, this is the way I think about it. If you're trying to lobby for more federal funding and you suddenly take 20% of the teachers across the state, and they're now unemployed, contingent upon receiving more money. That is something that could potentially motivate the federal government or some entity to step up and figure out a new way to do this so that those people can come off of unemployment and, and be made whole again. And these districts thereby can be made whole again. And all of these things, you can't Because what I see happening right now is clearly we're going toward a school year where um, we're talking about a lot of change. We're talking about one of the most diverse and unusual school years ever, but we're going to see most districts just basically try to do what they've done every year up until now. And that's either going to be catastrophic or it's just not going to matter because the, the virus won't be that bad and guidelines will be able to be laxed throughout the school year. But One of our
1: biggest problems with education is that it's funded with magic money. I mean, it's, it's, we hear about state aid, and we hear about state this, and federal this, and where do all those dollars come from? They all come from us, the taxpayer. Uh, I, I've been critical for years. Every time there's a school building project, the school puts it up and then tells us that 95% of it will be paid for by the state. Who's the state? I'm the state we pay for it either way so let's that would be a great place to start is let's get rid of most of the state aid and let's let those dollars stay in the local communities and let the local school boards decide and let taxpayers decide because we have this giant disconnect we want everything and we don't want to pay for any of it and we have a system that kind of encourages that belief Hey, we're gonna build a brand new wing on the school. It's ten million dollars, but the state's paying for almost all of it. Yep. Okay, that's great. Um, who's the state? It's me, it's you, It's taxpayers.
0: Yeah, and, and clearly there are a lot of questions that that remain and it's basically gonna come down to over the next several you know over the next several weeks and couple months in coming up with a plan and seeing how good the state is at actually executing it. And just the one more
1: monkey wrench to throw into this, I think we talked about this the last time we got together, there was a survey that said as many as 20% of teachers say they might not go back to work this year because they've grown disenchanted with this whole thing, Mm -hmm. and as many as a third of parents aren't comfortable sending their kids back to school under any in-person circumstances. So... Refusal. Even if they do partly open the doors, yep. you know, w- when we build it, will they come?
0: We will see. And where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday?
1: I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. If you're listening in Geneva, that's 95.9 and 1240 WGVA. If you're listening in Auburn, it's 98.1 and 1590 WAUB.
0: Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend and we'll catch you next time.